Hi, everybody. Tony Marcolini. Welcome to the podcast. It may interest you to know. Today I have, and for those of you who do listen, you'll know I talk about him, I think, in almost every single podcast I record, uh, best-selling author Matthew Dix, who I think is is my favorite author of this generation. So welcome, Matthew. You're very kind. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Well, I think I told you that, you know, of course, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I read all your books. Uh, and you did a nonfiction book recently. Uh, and I, I went into it very reluctantly because I love your fiction. And I was unhappy that it wasn't a, a fiction book. Is that is that crazy? Because I do read a lot of nonfiction. But from you, I felt like I wanted fiction. <laughs> so I, I got the book anyway, because I, I loved you and said, you know, I, I have to try because he, he is my favorite. So I picked up Some Days Today, your latest, and I was blown away uh, by the fact that it, it, while it's nonfiction, of course, it still reads almost like fiction, if you will, because you you're, you tell so many stories. I mean, and that's what you do, right? You're a storyteller. You tell so many stories, uh, especially starting off with bits and pieces of your own life. I thought, you know, you, you kind of went into revealed parts of yourself uh, to, to ease us into the novel. I mean, you know, it, you, you don't want to be too preachy, right? It, but you, you, you kind of soften it for us. You, you tell us a little bit about you and, and your survival story. And then suddenly I was more prepared to read the rest. Uh, well, I'm glad to hear that. I, I often tell people that, you know, if you're preparing to give a talk or a speech or you're going to deliver a TED talk or anything like that, my theory is always open with stories, get people to sort of enter your heart and mind. And once that happens, they're much better prepared to receive the message that you're going to offer. So, so I always start with story and I lead with story whenever possible, because I think that's what is entertaining most to people. So, so whether it's going to be my story, which happens a lot in that book, or I take the stories of other people who I know or people from history to sort of prove the concept. Yeah. I, I like story a lot in all of its, you know, wonderful facets. And it winds up being a book that, I, I mean, I can recommend to anybody. Uh, it's it's not just about, because I thought, oh, someday is today. Okay, this is going to be a book about don't put off your opportunities, right? Just go for it. Uh, you know, if you have something you want to do, do. I, I mean, I expected that kind of vibe to it. Uh, we're, it it's almost like a self-help book in some ways, I mean, there's solid advice into there in there about time management uh, and and just running your life, uh, you know, and how to run it more efficiently. I, I loved that about the book. I mean, I'm is this really the kind glad. of thing? Is this the kind of thing that you put together? That uh, because you get you get a lot of questions from people, and you decided, hey, you know, maybe it's time for me to uh, to memorialize my advice in one book that I can point to. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened. I, you know, I stand in front of lots of people speaking about my novels and stories and all these things. And when it gets to the question and answer portion of every speech, the first question or one of the most frequent questions I get is how do you do all the things that you do? You know, cause I'm an elementary school teacher and I write and I consult and I run a business and another business. So I do a lot of things. And at the same time, people know, 
I'm an avid golfer. I have two children that I actually spend lots of time with. I have a wife who still loves me. So presumably I'm occupying enough of her time as well. I, I have a life full of things. So people always wonder, how do you fit it all in? And whenever I got that question, my thought was always, if you give me 14 hours, I will help you figure it out. But no one ever wants to give me 14 hours. So what I would end up doing is sort of offering the one or two bits of advice that first popped to mind on that day. And I'd often think that was not very helpful. You know, that was sort of a, a smattering of, you know, advice that unless it's encapsulated in some kind of a philosophy, I don't know how much it's going to help them. So the book seeks to answer that question. Like, how do I manage to get all the things done that I get done? And I tell people all the time, I'm not special. I'm not a genius. I'm not a unicorn in any way. I've just sort of strategically decided to approach life in a way that I can do the most with the time that I have. And I think every other person in the world is capable of doing that. Sure. I mean, you definitely have time management advice there because you don't even waste your shower time. Like your shower time isn't even just about showering, <laughs> which, you know, is a little stunning. But I mean, you, you literally find a way to multitask in almost everything you do. Um, you know, oatmeal for lunch, right? Because it's, it's nutritious and it's quick and it still allows you to do other things. I, I mean, I, I thought to myself, how much time am I actually wasting? You know, I, when you really think about it, I feel like I'm a multitasker, right? I feel like I always have a million things on my to-do list and I'm trying to balance stuff all the time. And then I read your book and I felt like an amateur, right? <laughs> I said, oh, you know, I could fit easily. I mean, another 20 things, <laughs> you know, why aren't, why aren't I doing them? Um, well, you know, I do believe that we could be doing more. You know, I think the tragedy of people's lives is that when you're at the end of your life, you know, let's say the last couple of days of your life, minutes are precious when we're facing the end. And the goal in life should be to understand the preciousness of minutes before we reach the end, like well before, you know, in this time of our lives, when presumably most of us are not facing death, if we were to understand the preciousness of a minute now, like we will someday in the future, I think we live better lives. And so when I can multitask, that is something I'm going to do. Now, I always tell people multitasking is 100% a trap. If you're trying to engage in something really creative and meaningful and do some hard thinking, you can't do anything else. Like for example, we are now having a conversation. I am not multitasking in any way. Other than speaking to you and drinking a Diet Coke, I am 100% with you at this time. But there are lots of times in our lives when we are doing something and we can be doing something else. Like if I am taking a shower, I am gonna work on a story that I'm preparing for the stage or memorize a poem or continue to work on memorizing a poem. I'm gonna floss in there. So I never skip flossing. You know, the, my favorite one recently, I don't know if it made the book. When I brushed my teeth, I practiced my balancing because I, I read that one of the primary causes of death at the end of people's lives is a lack of balance because an older person falls ends up in the hospital and then dies because when old people go to the hospital, that is often what happens. And so I read somewhere that all you have to do is improve your balance by standing on your foot about a minute a day, each foot, a couple times a day, your balance will significantly improve. So it takes me two minutes to brush my teeth. So for the first minute, I stand on my right foot. And the second minute, I stand on my left foot. And I'll tell you, it took me one month to go from, this is really hard to wow, I can stand on one foot forever. 
So in the course of just a month, twice a day, practicing this, I've improved my balance. Hopefully, presumably, I've extended my life as a result. So those are the kinds of things where I'm trying to sort of make two out of one. But there are times when multitasking is a trap that you just can't get into. If I'm writing a book, I am not multitasking. If I'm playing with my son, I'm not multitasking. If I'm chatting with you, I'm not multitasking. But you you give a plethora of advice on ways to uh, save time, even balancing. And this is what I thought was probably one of the most precious parts of the book. You talk about balancing, um, i.e. I, weighing the difference between uh, driving, let's say, 20 miles to save a dollar, you know, off of something, uh, as and and on the flip side of that, you know, you've you've wasted that time out of your life that you could have been doing and you list like a thousand other things. Um, so you talked about balancing and making your decisions. And I thought that was a really important dialogue to have. Um, you know, we don't often balance things out, right? Automatically you say, oh, if I, if I travel to here, I can, you know, I can do this. Uh, I can get what I want. And we don't think, what am I trading off? That's not something we often factor into the analysis. And I thought you, you really put it well when you said, yeah, factor it in. Yeah, it's all about choice. It is, I am going to choose to spend my time in one way or another way. And that means, you know, if I'm going to drive an extra 15 minutes to get the gas that is 10 cents cheaper, I need to now rationalize that, you know, if I have a 12-gallon tank, which is the average size of an American car, I've just saved $1.20 by getting that 10 cent less a gallon gas. Was that worth the 15 minutes extra to that gas station in the 15 minutes back? I spent 30 minutes to save $1.20. And that's what people do. Not to mention they will spend more gas getting there and getting back. But mm -hmm. I have a neighbor who does that all the time. And, you know, there is a gas station around the corner from my house, which is absolutely more expensive than the one, you know, where he goes, where it's always cheaper and the lines are always long and you have to wait for a pump. And I drive by it every time and think, you fools, you're saving a dollar twenty and you're waiting in line and you probably drove here from Timbuktu in order to like land in this place. And that's the terrible choices that we make. You know, it's it's we always have a chance to be doing something wonderful. And we can't always. Sometimes the dishwasher needs to be emptied, the beds need to be made, diapers need to be changed. All these things have to happen in order for life to function. But if we can shrink the amount of time we do, we spend doing things we don't want to do, our lives just become a lot more joyous and we get to do the things we want to do. Now, here's a topic that I know will connect for many people. Um, you have a section of your book that talks about advice for getting away from negative people. Like ultimately negativity will bring you down. And that's something that a lot of us don't see, even when we're in those relationships with negative people. And oftentimes we need to be out of them before we can look back and see what happened. Uh, but you lay out, I mean, I think it was four strategies, right? For dealing with negative people and for recognizing that for what it is in your life. And I think that will speak to a great portion of the public. Yeah, well, there, there are different ways to handle it. You have to recognize it because it is true that the more negativity around you, the more likely you are going to be pulled down by that negativity. Actually, there's a lot of research that shows 
the proximity that you sit in your office, back when we sat in offices, the proximity you sat next to someone who was positive and productive increases your positivity and productivity at work. Meaning the closer you sit to a highly effective person, the more likely you are going to be highly effective. And the reverse was true. They, if they put you in a cubicle next to someone who can't do the job, you will also not be able to do the job. That is a tragedy, but it is absolutely true. So we have to eliminate sort of negativity in our lives whenever possible. And it often comes in the form of people. So, you know, my favorite strategy is eliminate, which just means get them out of your life. The odd thing about eliminating is it requires a difficult conversation quite often. You know, so you have a friend and you just realize they're not actually a friend. They're just sucking away at my life. I have to have a conversation, a really hard conversation that will eliminate them or cause them to at least change their behavior before I ultimately eliminate them because most people are unwilling to change behavior. But people will say, I don't want to have that hard conversation. So they'll, they'll, you know, they'll avoid the 15 minute conversation and instead be trapped in a 15 year unhealthy relationship instead. Like they're willing to trade that. And that just is a trade that we should never make. So you can't eliminate them all. If it's your sister, you probably can't eliminate her from your life. Although I've eliminated relatives who are not helpful to me in any way. And I don't need to have them in my life if they're not going to be productive. I, I'm more than willing to do that. I understand most people can't. You know, I've been a little aggressive about that. But if you can't eliminate them, other strategies I have, I, I believe in empathy. I think empathy is a huge, uh, a huge way to help yourself. If you have like a coworker who, well, I had a coworker a couple of years ago who was just the most negative human being in the world. And sort of everything was a big problem for this person. And, you know, every minor struggle was a major struggle. And there was a lot of complaining going on. And the way I dealt with this person was I recognized that this person was in a terrible marriage. And I recognized that every day this person went home to a spouse who was unkind and unloving. And this person felt trapped because they had kids. And so although it didn't make the behavior any kinder and any more palatable, I guess, during my day as I worked with this person, I was able to understand that it wasn't about me that it's still negative behavior, it's still rotten, I still don't like it, but I can feel empathy for that person and therefore it sort of you know, blunts the force of the negativity. Does that make sense? It does make sense. But I think a lot of us uh, I have trouble with the first thing uh, you were talking about. I think a lot of us have trouble. You recognize the person is negative. You recognize that uh, maybe they are having a toxic effect on your life. But we are so reluctant to pull the plug on relationships, you know, or or stop, uh, you know, try to stop the person. Because sometimes you may voice your your opinion to the, to the friend or to the other person in your life. But oftentimes, as you said, it falls on deaf ears. Uh, it's not likely that they're going to adjust their behavior. And we're a willing to continue tolerating that. And I think that that really, I, that spoke to me, uh, you know, because I eliminating, well, eliminating, like you said, is hard. And then trying to find other other ways uh, to, to handle it. I, I really just thought your ideas were powerful. Well, you know, you can also eliminate sort of with a less difficult conversation. You know, there was a person my friends and I used to play golf with. And this person was not 
enjoyable. Uh, took the game too seriously, you know, stomped around the golf course in an angry way. And what we did was we just slowly but surely began inviting him less often to golf until there came a point where he was playing so infrequently that we just stopped calling and he drifted away. And so that means, you know, if you're trapped in a toxic friendship, it means, you know, suddenly being a little more busy than you used to be, you know, and maybe you're not really any more busy, but your friend will be told that you're a little more busy, you know, and, and your phone calls will become less frequent. And when they call you or text you, maybe your responses are less frequent and, you know, slowly create that distance that will allow for eventually you can sort of turn your back and walk away and there won't be any repercussions. I am in favor of aggressive, you know, a, a much more aggressive approach to this, you know, yeah. and that is just the, the the temperament that I have when someone is difficult in my life. I recognize it as a choice. I can keep this person in my life or I can go find somebody else because we only have so much time. And how dare someone take a bit of my life away if they're not going to return something positive to me, you know, as I give them positivity. So I, I just see it as I am being really ruthless about my time. And if you are not going to make me happy in some way, I will go find someone else who is more capable than you are. But that, that again, is a difficult thing for many people to do, but maybe a more gentle form of elimination might, might be in order and that might be helpful to the people. Well, you have that 10 minute rule, right? It's like 10 minutes is valuable. Oftentimes we dismiss that and say, oh, well, it's only 10 minutes. Um, but you see 10 minutes is useful and you list like all the things you could actually accomplish in 10 minutes. So not, not to feel like every minute matters. And I think that traces back um, because as you tell your story in the beginning, uh, you know, of the book and about, um, of course, having uh, been put in a situation where you, you thought you were going to be murdered, right? Yeah. On, the, on the floor of McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess when you're put in that position, every moment after that seems like you're you're living a gift or, you know, because when you think about the fact that your life could have ended right at that moment, I, I think that's probably a startling eye opener for how precious life actually is. Yeah, I think the the thing that happened to me that night you know, I had reached a point where I was absolutely sure they were going to kill me. It's so funny. I've never used the word murder to describe it, but you're right. I was sure that they were going to murder me, you know, a gun to the head and they were counting back from three. And the, the astounding thing to me always is that I was not afraid or angry or even sad. The only feeling I felt was regret, regret that I had not filled my days in a way that I should have. And I think sadly, that how I felt that night when I was 21 is the same way so many people feel at the end of their life, at the actual end of their life. So the only gift I got that night, which is not something I would ever wish on anyone because it you know, was a decade and a half of PTSD before I finally found some help. But you know, if people can learn from it, I just got a glimpse of what it is like in your final moments. And that feeling, you know, I just learned that David Cassidy, the, the musician, the world renowned, Partridge family sure. musician, when he passed away a couple of years ago, his last four words to his daughter on his deathbed were so much wasted time. And that's David Cassidy, like who did things that we will always remember and created music that people still listen to today. And in the last moments of his life, what was he doing? He was feeling regret 
about wasted time. The same feeling I had on the floor of a McDonald's restaurant. The only thing I'm trying to get people to understand is don't wait until you're on your deathbed thinking about all the things you should have done. Like if you can just embrace the idea that a bus can hit you tomorrow. I'm so, I'm always astounded by people who tell me about like their five-year plan. I think, are you crazy? You Like it's as if they think five years is assured and they live as if five years is assured. You know, I just think that that is a ridiculous way to live. Not to mention if you're actually living a life that I sort of, I recommend where you're saying yes to everything and pushing open doors to things you never thought you would like. You can't even predict what five years is going to be like. Hopefully five years from now, your life is totally different than how it is today. Cause that would be wonderful. Cause if we're constantly evolving and changing, we're going to be happy people. But to assume you have five years ahead means you're probably going to put off a lot of things. And if you're unfortunate enough to not have five years, you're going to find yourself in the same position that I found that night in McDonald's in the same position David Cassidy found at the end of his life. Regret is a terrible thing. I don't want anyone to feel it. I agree with you. I'm, I remember, I remember hearing the words, you know, when I, uh, when I was told that I had cancer and I felt the same sense of regret, right? The same, like uh, suddenly all the things that I wanted to do and I knew that I always felt like there would be time, you know, later to get to everything. And suddenly I realized maybe there isn't. And like, I was filled with regret for a lot of the choices I had made. uh, And, and I think I realized probably the way you did at that moment um, wasting time is, is not a good idea because, and no, no moment is a given, right? It's the worst thing, wasting time. I really believe that wasting time is the worst thing. And there's no value judgment that I make in terms of how people spend time. I have a client who actually, her goal, her horizon goal, I talk talk to people about what your horizon goal is. She wants to watch all the films on the Criterion channel with her husband and then have good conversations about them. That's her goal. And I think it's a beautiful goal. Like, good for you, you know? I'm sort of against spending a lot of time in front of a television normally, because I don't think we'll ever be happy about it at the end of our lives. I love television. My, My family and I are in the midst of a Stranger's Thing you know, epic watching period, but it takes us forever because we don't watch TV that much. But when I watch it, I'm with my kids. We're watching it. We're talking about it. We're we're talking about it the next day. It's an experience. It's not I'm binge watching a show to get to the next one that I can binge watch. So for her, Criterion Channel, conversations with her husband, meaningful time spent, that's great. I don't think that's wasted time. I think wasted time is when we move through life without purpose. I think most people live their lives like water down a mountain. They follow the path of least resistance, which means they often make their choices based upon what other people think or other people want or what society has deemed appropriate or best rather than doing what they want to do, which often requires a hard choice and a difficult path, you know, and struggle. But those things are all beautiful. And that's where you, that's where you end at the bottom of the mountain in the place you want to be rather than in that pool of water with everybody else wondering what the hell did I just do with my life? You, you just don't want to be doing that at the end of your life. And I mean, every day people die in, in car accidents and in unexpected ways, right? That's an important thing to remember. We all think, okay, I'll see it coming, right? Like I'll know when it's going to happen and therefore I'll have time to maybe, you know, run around then and try to do <laughs> uh, what I want to do. But 
But the reality is people die every day in unexpected ways. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I mentioned this in the book, but, you know, before those three men broke into my McDonald's and put the gun to my head, you know, when I was 12, I was stung by a bee and I'm allergic to bees. I did not know it. I ended up on my dining room floor. And when the paramedics broke the door down, I was not breathing and my heart was not beating. And they performed CPR on me and restored my life. And then when I was 17 years old, I went through the windshield of a Datsun B210 in a head-on collision in a snowstorm. And once again, in the back of an ambulance, my heart stopped beating and I stopped breathing and paramedics restored my life through CPR. Oddly, those two events didn't change the way I looked at my life because in both of those cases, I didn't know I was about to die. So I didn't feel that regret. You know, with the bee sting, it was the 1980s. I didn't even know what was happening to me. Nobody was allergic to anything in the 1980s. You know, we were all eating asbestos caked, you know, bread and peanut butter, peanut butter <laughs> and nobody was dying of anything. So when I sort of panicked and closed my eyes and went unconscious, you know, after that bee sting, I didn't think, oh my God, I'm going to die. And when I went through that windshield of that car, shock is a beautiful thing because shock wipes away everything. You know, I didn't feel any pain. I felt no fear. I'm in the back of an ambulance. You know, I opened my eyes as a woman shoving a tube down my throat. Someone's pounding on my chest, right? They're performing CPR on me. Both times I didn't understand that I was about to die. So I oddly didn't change my life at all in the two cases when I actually did die and get brought back. It was the time that I knew, or I thought I knew that I was going to die. Like you, the diagnosis of cancer, the understanding that I might be at the end now, that is what changes people's perspective. But so often that understanding comes at the end and by then it is too late. So we have to try to embrace it now. We have to listen to people like me, frankly, and believe what I say, because I don't want you to experience what I experienced, but I want you to move through life in a more purposeful, productive way where you're chasing your dreams. Whether that's become a published author or tell stories on stages or build a business or watch every movie on the Criterion Channel with your husband. Or I, I have another client who wants a vegetable garden in the backyard. And she said, I've been talking about having a vegetable garden in my backyard for the last eight years. What has stopped me from doing it? It's And I said, it's not really that hard. Like that's not a... It's not Summit Everest, you know, and she's waited and she realizes I wasted eight years of, of when I could have had a vegetable garden. And then she read my book and she realized I have to, I have to go do something now. So no judgment on what your dream is, but for goodness sake, have a dream, have a thing that you're shooting for and then shoot for it. Well said. Uh, and I think your book someday is today. It, it it's right there in the title, right? I mean, I went into the book expecting to hear that message, but you just say it better, right? <laughs> like, like you just say it in a way that makes me want to listen to it. Um, and, and I experienced something very similar, you know, to you. You know, I had that moment where I looked, you know, I looked back at my life and I said, wow. And it's amazing that you can see clearly uh, I mean, I remember I had gotten into a car accident in 2009 as well, and I saw it coming. It wasn't one of those things that I was already injured, you know, bef before I knew what was going on. I was driving straight. Somebody made an abrupt left in front of me. So I had that f frozen moment, you know, yeah. where I was like, 
<laughs> like where I knew I was going to head on collide with them. Uh, and, and in that moment, believe it or not, I, I literally did see flashes of moments in my life, uh, you know, and, and, and I didn't get jogged then though. I mean, I saw these flashes of moments and I remembered later, you know, seeing those moments and thinking, huh, that's got to mean something, you know, this should mean something to me. And then I went, you know, as soon as I healed, I went right back to life as I knew it. Yeah. Uh, it really took, I think the years of, uh, you know, of, of life happening, the, the cancer diagnosis is truly like a punch in the gut, right? I mean, you, you think, oh, like, yeah, like, that's it. Like now I'm, I'm done. Right. I didn't want to be done. Like, uh, you know, and, and I think I felt that in your words. I mean, of course you talk about a lot of things early on in your life, which I thought were very revealing. Uh, and I will say that you make everyone feel close to you because you reveal so much of yourself on paper, which I think is difficult. Uh, yeah. It's not for me. I always like to assure people of that. I always say that it takes enormous courage for most people to be vulnerable. Uh, but I want to always be clear, for some reason, it doesn't take any courage from me. So I get no credit for willing to share of myself. It's just a thing that has always come natural for me. So while it is difficult for some people, um, I had a woman in, in a workshop once tell me, who's known me for a long time and, and taken lots of my classes. She said, you're the most courageous person I've ever met. You just say everything in your head and everything that's happened to you. And I said to her, I'm not. I said, do not think of me in that way. Had she done what I was doing, that would have been courageous. But for me, it has just come natural. And that's a good, just good bit of fortune for me that I just, in, in the words of one of my friends, he says, you live out loud, which is basically anything that comes into Matt's head will eventually come out into the world in some way. There's no secret. So um, it's just and the way I am. And your book does exactly that. I mean, your book lets us share a little bit of the hardships of your young life, which of course was not an easy life. I don't want to give away too much, you know, so readers can read about it. But I mean, you, you had your, your certainly your share of issues early on. Uh, and I think you probably developed this success story that you ultimately are, um, in a, in, a, in a slower measured way, am I right? I mean, I, it wasn't just a one day, you know, after that happened, you're like, oh, this is what I'm gonna do. It seems like it built up like with you figuring out what works. Oh yeah, it, you know, it, it took a while. I mean, that moment on that floor convinced me that I was going to move forward relentlessly and use my time in a way that I had not used it before. But that did not mean that every answer was revealed, right? And, you know, as you know, at that point in my life, I was awaiting trial for a crime I did not commit. I had just gotten off the streets. I had been homeless previously, you know, so my life was still a mess in a lot of ways, but I had a horizon. I, I said to myself, I've always wanted to be a teacher. I had given up on the dream because I was kicked out of my house, you know, after high school and no one had said the word college to me. So my dream didn't feel like a reality in any way or a possible reality. But after that moment on the floor, I thought, what are you crazy? Like, it's not that hard to become a teacher, Matt. Like, you know, like you're going to have to find your way to college and you're going to have to find a way to pay for it. And you're going to have to see if you can do college, but like, these are not impossible dreams. I'm not looking to get to Mars. I'm looking to get to a classroom. So there were lots of you know, there were lots of bumps along the way and a lot of figuring of things out. And it was 
hard uh, at times, you know, a challenging path. Uh, but I did it, and I don't think I'm a unicorn. I just, I don't think I'm very special in any way. You know, I think that one of the things that my book talks about a lot that I think is helpful to people is just the idea of building these habits and building systems so that on the days when you sort of forget the preciousness of minutes, you're, the way that you're leading your life doesn't allow you to forget that anymore. You know, so, so if you take my advice and you make a list of all the things you can do in 10 minutes, you know, and you make a good list and you keep that list in a few places in your house, when you have 10 minutes, the easiest thing and the thing most people do today when they have 10 minutes is they look at a phone, which right. always makes us feel worse than how we felt a minute ago, right? Very rarely do we look at our phone and feel better when we're done looking at it. But because it's in our pocket, and because it's a dopamine machine that every platform is designed to make us feel good about clicking a button so that we click another button, so we click another button, that is what everyone chooses to do. And you will always choose to do that unless you have an alternative, unless you say to yourself, oh, in 10 minutes, I can fold that load of laundry. And then I won't have to do it later, which means that I can spend that time writing a book or playing with my son or, or petting my cat, you know, or in 10 minutes, I can, you know, I can write five good sentences or I can read two paragraphs of a book, you know, that I strategically place by the door so that I can continue reading that book that doesn't demand all of my attention. Right now, it's a book by, um, what's his name? Groucho Marx. It's, a, oh. it's Groucho Marx Letters Collected. It sits by my door. It's perfect because when I'm at the door and I'm ready to go and my son has to find his shoes, which are always in two different rooms, <laughs> and my wife has to like grab water or snacks, like everybody's like, heading out on like a, a three-day hike every time we leave the house for some reason. But I'm always ready to go. The list of letters from Groucho Marx is by the door. And that's great because I can read a letter or two and laugh. I actually look at something that makes me feel good before I leave the door, rather than what most people do is they go to some timeline and they look at pictures of people that are more idealized than in real life. And then they leave the door feeling bad about the way they look. It makes no sense whatsoever. But you have to create systems that avoid those things so that even on your worst days, you're still making those good decisions. I'm reminded of that Everybody Loves Raymond episode, right? Where Ray is constantly downstairs waiting for Deborah, right? She's always putting those last minute touches on getting herself ready. And, and you know, he's down there screaming and just getting so crazy and angry that he winds up leaving without her. Um, so it, that's really interesting to me that you, instead of being angry or getting, you know, what could be a fight with your wife or, you know, a, a bad relationship with your kids because you're constantly, you're, you're just saying, all right, well, let me try to use the time to do something fun and positive and I might enjoy. <laughs> like, like, why doesn't everybody think that way? You make it seem so simple. Uh, and that's, I think, a great thing about your book. You really had helpful suggestions for all different situations for anybody looking to make their life better. Um, not just to time management, or but just to feel better in life, to feel like you're doing what you want to do, you're accomplishing what you want to accomplish, to not to sweat the small things so much. And I thought that was an undercurrent in, in the theme of your book as well. Uh, so yeah. Again, can you talk a little bit, tell everybody about the the, the, the eagle, oh, right? the eagle yes. and the mouse. Right. So, uh, you know, on the on the Native American spirit wheel, or at least on one of them, there's uh, four positions. And um, 
two of them are irrelevant for this conversation, but the other two, the eagle and the mouse. Uh, it came about because there was a night when I was doing report cards alongside my wife, who was also a teacher. And in the span of an hour or 90 minutes, I finished all my report cards while listening to an audio book and while also playing online poker and, you know, making a bunch of money. Meanwhile, my wife had completed one report card. And so we went to bed and I didn't know how annoyed she was with me, but she was. And the next day she went to our principal and she said, you know, I don't know how I can live with this guy. He finished all his report cards and played poker and listened to a book. And I got one done. And my boss, his name's Plato Karafelis. He's since retired, but a good friend of mine. A great Played, name, by the and way. And a great name, yes. A, great a, Greek, name. a Greek guy. So Plato said to her, he said, you know, Native American spirit wheel. He said, Matt is the eagle and you are the mouse, Alicia. And there's no judgment in the position of these two things. So the, the eagle is the person who can see the big picture. And so for me, I understand when I'm doing report cards, what parents really care is that I write a comment on the report card that says, I love your kid, which is always true, that I understand your kid in some way by indicating something about the kid that I know that someone who didn't know the kid would not know, and then telling the parent that I still think they can be working harder, and here's some goals we should have for your child. Nothing else really matters to a parent. They're, they're, they're the ones and the twos and the Ms and the Ls, all of that is meaningless to parents. And I understand that because I'm the eagle. My wife is the mouse. And so mice pay attention to the details. They obsess over the details, which is important in life. You know, our house is beautifully decorated because my wife is the mouse and she sees the things that I don't see. And so it's very relevant to be a mouse. And there's times when I'm a mouse, for sure. When I'm writing a novel, I'm a mouse. Every word choice is important to me. Most people in life though, stay in the grass. Most people are mice and they get so focused on the details that they start to worry about things that are utterly irrelevant to them. Rather than taking flight, looking down and, and seeing the reality of life, which is, you know, if I spend an extra 15 minutes doing my hair, it turns out no one ever notices. There's a great scientific study on good hair days. They ask people, are you having a good hair day or a bad hair day? And then they would go to the people who interacted with that person and say, did you notice if they were having a good hair day or a bad hair day? Nobody knows. The only person who knows you're having a good hair day is you, and yet people spend enormous amounts of time trying to create a good hair day that no one will ever notice, right? The eagle understands this and says, it doesn't matter, I'm leaving now. The mouse stays in the weeds and says, no, it's not right, it's, it's still not there. I want it to look perfect when, unless you have a mirror in front of you all day long, you're the only one who would ever notice and even you won't be noticing. So we have to look at our lives occasionally. We have to take flight and we have to say to ourselves, are we doing a thing that is really valuable and important? Is the thing that I'm focused on right now critical in any way? Or can I just sail over this? Can I forget this because it doesn't matter? Nobody cares. One of my favorite things is to say, will this matter a week from now? You know, so I think in the book I talk about, there was a time during the pandemic when my wife and I, we stocked the basement freezer with meat, a lot of meat, hundreds of dollars worth of meat. And then my daughter went down into the basement one day to get a popsicle and she did not close the freezer. She left it wide open. And three days later, we went back to the basement and discovered what she had done and all the meat was wasted. And my wife was really upset. She was standing there. She was upset. Hundreds of dollars of meat. We're going to throw it away. It's wasteful. And I said, stop. I said, a week from now, 
will we still be upset about the meat or will we be telling a story about the most expensive popsicle ever? And if that's true, which she acknowledged would be true, let's not waste time being angry now. Let's free ourselves of that unhealthy feeling and just move forward because this does not need to be a mouse issue, right? I sailed above it and said, I can't do anything about it. The money is lost. The meat is lost, but I'm not going to lose my day by being upset about it also. And to my wife's credit, she said, okay, I agree. And she changed her attitude too. We cleaned up the meat and now we tell the story of the most expensive popsicle ever and we laugh about it. So I love that. It's just all of that. I do that all the time. I say it to myself and other people, you know, oh my gosh, we're going to be 10 minutes late. Will it matter a week from now for 10 minutes late? It might not even matter today. I'm not even sure if anyone's going to notice. So if it's not going to matter a week from now, who cares? Let's just be 10 minutes late and let's not make the next 10 minutes stressful. Who cares? So be asking yourself that question. Will it matter next week? Sometimes it does, you know, and then you're like, okay, I got to pay attention to this. But sometimes it just doesn't matter. I have to ask, you're you're very enlightened in this way. I mean, do you do you read a lot of philosophy, philosophers, psychology, or did this just innately happen for you? I think it honestly all comes from that moment in that restaurant with the gun to my head and the decision that using your time wisely also means choosing what's important and what's not. You know, it's not philosophy. I don't read I don't read philosophy and I actually don't read a lot of books like some days today. I don't read a lot of self-help in any way whatsoever. It was, it's just the, it's just the effect of 25 years of trying to maximize the time I have on this planet so that I can do the things I want to do, spend the time with the people I want to spend it with and be a happy person. And so just making those choices, those long range horizon aiming choices so that every day is a good day for me. So just create, you wound up creating your own formula just by living and figuring, figuring out what works for you. Yeah. And, you know, I had help along the way. I I don't know if I talk about this in the book, but, you know, we were watching the movie, my wife and I, one day, the founder, which is the story of the founder of McDonald's. And there was, there was a scene in that movie where they're trying to like orchestrate the perfect kitchen so that the fewest steps are taken. And I managed McDonald's for 10 years until I managed to get through college. And uh, my wife paused the movie and she said, is this why you are the way you are? And I, it occurred to me probably because I seek to find the shortest route to complete any task. And then I repeat that process every single time without exception. And she thinks I'm a little crazy, you know, that I will not alter the routine in any way but why would I? Because why would I want to spend one more minute doing a chore that I don't enjoy when I found the best way to do it? Why would I not repeat it every time? And so, you know, I've had some help along the way from people who have offered me advice and, you know, training from managers and, and McDonald's teaching me that, you know, shorten every step whenever possible. So those things have been ingrained by other people, but I've sort of pulled it all together in what is now that book. So last topic from the book, I I have to get to, you talk about self-doubt and not letting self-doubt ruin your life. I think so many people do do exactly that. Um, They they let self-doubt get in their head and that never allows them to move forward. 
they're almost paralyzed by that. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it comes from a lot of places. I think ultimately, you know, probably the two things that people have to really sort of reframe in their minds is first the idea of seeking perfection, which is insanity. You know, people are afraid of making bad things. They're afraid of doing something poorly. They want to do it well. And the result is they tend to think a lot about something and then never actually do it. So there's people with visions of, you know, launching businesses and even having a baby, you know, a couple who's deciding to have a baby. I know couples who are waiting for the right time, which is you know, crazy because there's no right time to, I've had two of them. There's no right time. They just, they come and you have them and you figure it out as you move along. But a lot of people don't do these things. They, they just continue to seek perfection. And the result is inaction. Perfection is always inaction because we can't get there. You know, a B minus is a beautiful thing. You know, a, a B minus garden in your backyard is better than eight years of not having a garden, you know, and, and getting through 72 of those top 100 criterion films is better than watching none of them, right? So getting through some of the work that we need to do is better than doing none of the work. Like putting something in the world is a beautiful thing. The act of creation, even if the act of creation is a garden in your backyard or a conversa conversation with your husband over a great film, those are acts of creation. I believe that those are worthy regardless of how imperfect they are. The other problem that people have is they don't understand or believe in the spotlight effect, despite the fact that it's been proven to be true so often. It's the, it's the idea that we as human beings believe that people are paying more attention to us than they actually are. And it makes sense to have this predilection because we are the protagonist of our story. We are the center of every one of our stories. So oddly enough, we somehow assume we are near the center of everyone else's stories too, which is never the case. And it's proven again and again. They do these great studies where they'll send a college student into a classroom wearing the most outrageous outfit you could ever imagine. And they put that kid right in the middle of the class for an hour. And then when the class ends, they ask that kid, how many people do you think noticed your outfit? And the kid always says like most of them. And then they quiz the class and it turns out nobody noticed, like barely anyone notices what you're wearing on a given day. Barely anyone notices you're good in your bad hair days. No one notices any of these things. And yet we remain paralyzed because we're worried about everyone's looking at us and everyone's thinking about us. I'm working with an executive who's getting ready to launch a newsletter and she wants enough content so that every week she can have a newsletter on Monday. And I said, well, you got to get it off the ground. You've been talking about it for six months. And she said, well, what if I don't have content on a Monday? And I said, do you really think everyone's hovering over their keyboards at 8 a.m. on Monday, hoping for your newsletter to arrive on time? Do you think that they're going to like come to your house with pitchforks if on a Monday you missed the newsletter? I subscribe to lots of newsletters, but if one didn't arrive in a given week, I probably would never notice. It would just come the next week and I'd be like, oh, there it is again. But that was her thought. Her thought was, if it's not there, people will be disappointed with me. You know, and one of the arguments I made to her was I said, the last time you went to a wedding, did you plan your outfit carefully? And she said, yes. And she told me she actually went out and bought a new outfit. She wanted to look great. I said, fantastic. I said, that wedding, which had been six months before, I said, what was anyone else at the wedding wearing other than the bride and groom? And she said, I don't remember what anyone was wearing. I said, you understand 
everyone else at the wedding doesn't remember what you were wearing either, right? That that all of that is forgotten, except you spent hours in Nordstrom's trying on dresses, right? When you already had a dress in your closet, which would have been fine, and you tortured yourself for something that nobody remembers but you. Now, if you want to have a beautiful dress and you want to look a certain way, that's one thing. But if you're doing it because you're worried about what other people think, no one's thinking about you. I promise you. And when we embrace those two things, we can let go of self-doubt because we, we stop seeking perfection and we stop worrying about the thoughts and opinions of other people. And we can just do the things we want to do instead of what everyone else wants us to do. But that's a challenge, but it is a 100% true thing in both regards. Yeah, amazing. I, I think that I think that also is a problem for most of the public. I think we all feel self-doubt, you know, maybe not at the same things or at the same time, right? But it's at certain portions of our lives, we feel self-doubt about something. And as I said, it's, I think it's, it can paralyze a person. And that was one of the things I liked about your book. You talk about that. Like you, you talked about lots of different things that people would ex can't, wouldn't do experience in just living their life and how to work around that to make your life better, uh, how, to, how to still accomplish your goals or have some goals or find happiness Right. And that's a huge thing for me, you know, find joy, you know, find your joy in life, because I think, like you said, you don't know if you'll be here tomorrow. And the last thing you want to say is, hey, I, I, I never found any joy. Right. I lived in some sense of misery and, and that's no way to live. No, it's not. No. Yeah, it's so, terrible. It breaks my heart. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I loved your book. I, I highly recommend your book. Uh, you know, I, I recommend everything you read, as I said, you know, your fiction and I quote you all the time on the podcast. Oh. Like I'll be talking to other guests and I'll be like, well, you know, Matthew, Matthew Dick says about this <laughs> <laughs> and I'll start talking about you. So everybody knows about, about you. They must think I'm completely obsessed. Uh, but you are, I think of this generation, you know, you are my favorite writer of this generation because I think your fiction is through the roof good, right? I've said it before, you, you, you find the heroes and the most unlikely people. And I love that. I love reading something where the person I least expect or that people otherwise ignore in society uh, turns out to be the hero, right? Because everybody's got their story. Everybody's living their life and has their story. And like when, when that person, that ignored person who is not given their due or not given their credit in society rises above and winds up being the hero. I, I, I love that story. I think that's an amazing and important story to tell. Uh, not only for the, you know, for everybody reading it who maybe disregards that person, but for the people themselves who somehow feel diminished in society to see themselves in a book, you know, as the hero. Uh, so I, I love that. I love, and I love that your stories are so creative and different. Uh, you know, I always say something's, mi something's missing. I, I wish I would see in screen form, right? I think Me in, too. <laughs> I, I think in a movie, oh my goodness, I would love that to be on the big screen. I'm surprised it isn't already, quite frankly, this, the story is so good. Yeah, well, it's option. So, you know, but uh, as I have learned over the years that uh, as many of my books has, have been optioned from time to time, 
Uh, that doesn't mean very much in Hollywood. Uh, they, they tend not to be making a lot of something missing these days. You know, if I if I don't put a superhero in my um in my book, unfortunately, I don't think it's um likely for the big screen. But we'll see. Well, well what better superhero than 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 the the cat burglar with the OCD? I, I mean, agree. <laughs> right, Th that is the story. That's the story people want to see. Yeah. Uh, so that that would be great. I, I do hope to see that on the big screen. But I do. Thank I you. love your fiction. And I now can say that I love your nonfiction too. Well, thank you. I'm glad. I'm working on fiction now. I'm working on uh, two books uh, of fiction, and I have a book of nonfiction I'm working on as well. So they're they're coming. There's you're, I always think, for me, tragically, the one sort of lesson I can't take from my book is I always um, I'm only as good as the next book. I always think. And my wife recently, I was complaining that I had to write this next book. And I said, it's got to be good. You know, it's just got to be good. And she said, can you ever spend five minutes being satisfied with what you've done? She <laughs> said, you know, she's like, you were homeless and now you've published eight books. Can you look at those eight books and think, I am a writer. I am an author. I'm a legitimate 100% American author. And it is a terrible thing that that as many books as I may write, I keep thinking, I'm just fooling them. You know, I, I got to just keep fooling them into thinking that I'm worth publishing. So that is that is a bit of advice I can't take for myself yet. But but being perpetually dissatisfied is, um, it is, it's an engine that um, keeps me moving every day. So that's a good thing. And the fact that you have more stories to tell, obviously, in, in your head. <laughs> yes, I, I. the one gift my agent will tell you I have is uh, I have plenty of stories. It is a matter of choosing which one I want to write next, really, is the issue. Well, I when so when is your next book coming out? I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I'm in the middle of it, and um, it's when I finish it. So I would probably say, you know, maybe the end of 2023. Uh, you know, it okay. takes a year after you're done writing it for it to actually hit a bookstore shelf. So um, I would hope that it would be finished by this year and then out next year. So we'll see. Well, I can't wait. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here. I loved, I loved this book. Uh, I'll put a link to the book into your website uh, below the video. As always, I appreciate you so much. You're incredibly talented. I hope you'll keep coming back. And as you keep publishing, you know, your books, I hope you keep coming back to talk to me about them. Anytime. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks. Bye.